I say this all the time, but journalism is the only profession that is protected in the Constitution. interview editor Eric Denk and I had the opportunity to sit down and talk to GU Politics fellow Jonathan Capehart. Capehart is a Pulitzer Prize winning member of the Washington Post editorial board, writes about politics and social issues, and hosts the Cape Up podcast. He is also an MSNBC contributor who regularly serves as a substitute anchor and has served as a guest host on Midday on WNYC on New York Public Radio. Capehart is a regular moderator of panels at the Aspen Ideas Festival and for the Aspen Institute, the Center for American Progress, and the Brussels Forum of the German Marshall Fund. He has also moderated sessions at the Atlantic's Washington Ideas Forum and for the Connecticut Forum. Capehart was deputy editorial page editor of the New York Daily News from 2002 to 2004 and served on that paper's editorial board from 1993 to 2000. In 1999, his 16-month editorial campaign to save the famed Apollo Theater in Harlem earned him and the board the Pulitzer Prize for editorial writing. Capehart left the Daily News in July 2000 and became the national affairs columnist for Bloomberg News and took a leave from this position in February 2001 to serve as a policy advisor to Michael Bloomberg in his first successful campaign for New York City mayor. Our spring theme for the um, uh, publication of the Georgetown Public Policy Review is Rethinking Governance. So for for the annual journal this year, we have uh, researchers and writers writing about sort of that general theme. And I wanted to get your perspective as a journalist and an opinion writer about what role um, journalists and opinion writers have in shaping policy discussions and actually ultimately policy outcomes? Um, Well, I mean, journalists are, um, we're peripheral to the whole, to the whole sort of democratic experience. It's supposed to be the legislators, whether at the local level, state level, or federal level, who are debating the issues. They've been voted in by the people, and they're debating the issues, and, you know, they passed bills, the mayor, governor, or the president signs them, and then they become law. Um, But it's the role of the journalist to write about, report on the debates going back and forth about any particular issue or situation. And, you know, the news side reporters will give you um, Senator so-and-so said this, Democrat whatever, Senator so-and-so said that. Uh, Republican, uh, whatever, and you are able to get both sides of, of a situation. Opinion writers are, do the same thing, but then they get to say um, either the Republican is right or the Democrat is right or this particular Democrat is wrong um, if it's an in, intra-party fight. Uh, and so basically um, journalists are on the periphery but they're also they also serve as referees 
uh, and referees on behalf of, of the people. So the legislators are voted in by the people, and then it's the reporters, the journalists, who are keeping tabs on those those elected officials on behalf of the people. Um, I, I say this all the time, but journalism is the only profession that is protected in the Constitution. And so it is a, uh, it, I mean, it's a spectacular job. It's a lot of fun. But when you understand that and you know that, especially in the times that we're in now, um, you know, that duty actually is very crystal clear and actually has a, a lot of weight to it. Speaking specifically about the times that we're living in right now, um, I would say that um, the, the Trump administration has significantly heightened the American focus on the role of journalists and journalism and sort of made, um, made a lot of the American public sort of desperate for news and for opinion and for solace, one, one could say, uh, or for investigation. Um, and sort of the feeling that the Trump administration is being held accountable in part by journalists. And so I wanted to know your perspective on how um, Donald Trump's sort of ability to control the news cycle and what he has changed about journalism affects um, both your profession and, and perhaps his own form of governance, his own policymaking. There's a lot. There's a lot in that. A lot in that question, Lucy. But um, okay. First things first. With President Trump, you have to understand that he is not. Well, he's not like any politician we've ever seen. He's unlike any president we've ever had under any party. Um, And you have to understand that for him, the normal political rules do not apply. When his administration started, I, like millions of other people, were I was tearing my hair out because it was like, oh my God, what's he doing? A president would never do that. How is that presidential? And it wasn't until, it took me a little while that I realized, you know what? If you look at him through the prism of a president, nothing that, nothing makes sense. Nothing makes sense. Mm-hmm. But when I view him through the prism of, say, a crime boss, everything makes sense. Everything. A president would not fire the director of the FBI who was investigating his administration or potentially him. No president would do that, but a crime boss would do that. No president would be surrounded by, would, would not have, would know better than to hire a campaign chairman national security advisor, a campaign foreign policy advisor, um, a deputy campaign chairman. I, I'm leaving out about 20 people. But, but a president wouldn't have those kinds of people around him. But a crime boss most certainly would. And so when looking at, when looking at President Trump, you can't look at him and I, I'm speaking, I want to be clear, I'm speaking for, my, for, for myself here, that you cannot view him through the presidential prism. As a result, his ability to, to dominate the news cycle is a completely different animal because for him, any press, any attention 
is good attention. As long as they are talking about you, that matters. For usually, a normal person would be like, oh, I only want them to say nice things about me. But President Trump has made it clear time and again, does not matter whether you say something nice. He would prefer you say something nice about him. But um, as long as you're talking about him, everything is fine. There's this one example where I was like, this, this is how nutty things have become. There was some incredible thing that came out um, related to Mueller. And um, it was super damaging. But Giuliani, his lawyer, TV lawyer, comes out and makes an admission saying, well, you know, if there's a tape with Storm, you know, Michael Cohen has a tape talking about the Stormy Daniels thing. I mean, that would be something or something like that. And everyone was like, wait, did he just because people knew there were tapes, but Cohen couldn't talk about them because I guess it was like privilege or something like that. Yeah, it was privilege. But because Giuliani acknowledged it publicly, then the, but the Cohen tape then overshadowed this other thing. So think about that. Bad news. Let's, break, let's bring out this other thing that is going to make the president's life even more terrible. Um, but we're still that. talking about him. And at least it distracts from the first scandal with the second or mm -hmm. with the 15th, you know. Right. Um, what do you think of sort of his use of the press to uh, divert attention? I'm thinking specifically of his um, sort of ramp up of talking about migrant caravans um, before the um, before the midterm election and um, and sort of in part to divert attention from his own investigations was my perception. And I just wondered what what you think the press's responsibility is in um, curtailing his use of of you know of your profession. Well, I mean you get, I mean he has been using the press for decades mm -hmm. for decades, um, right down to calling up, reporters and using a pseudonym i think it was john Barron was the name the, the name of the person so there's no way to stop him from quote unquote using the press what the press has to do is and it took them a little while to get there but they're now there where it is you know the president says two plus two equals five and within a nanosecond there's some reporter either on Twitter or in a newsroom, television um, um, control room where they put up two plus two does not equal five, mm -hmm. or the president misleads on arithmetic, so, something like that where you have real time, um, real time fact checking. He can try to distract, but I think you know, usually the distraction works when the press is sort of, there's sort of like plausible deniability. Oh, there's no possible, I mean, sure, they, they could try to distract us, but would they really do that? Trump, every, everything is either projection or distraction. And if he thought that he was going to um, distract the press from the Mueller investigation, that would be the... Um, like a prime example of the president living in the short term as opposed to thinking long term. Usually presidents think 
try to think 10 steps ahead. This president thinks in what, maybe three or four hours, depending on, depending on what's happening uh, in, in the news. In, with the migrant caravan, he may have thought he was going to distract from, from the, the Mueller investigation, but the way he talked about the migrant caravan and especially when he was doing it turned into its own mess for him because now, well, not mess, mess is too strong because in the end he did end up as a result of his targeted campaigns in the last two weeks was able to help Republicans retain the Senate. I mean, they lost the House by a lot, but um, what the migrant caravans did was sort of focus the mind that, wow, the President of the United States is actively using fear and hatred to gin up votes. And that led to a whole other conversation that while we may have been diverted from looking at you know the Mueller train wreck for Trump over here, we have to grapple with the fact that the president is literally dividing Americans in order to retain power for the Senate. Definitely. Um, and going sort of back to opinion journalism, we see, we see so many opinion journalists or opinion writers and um, coming at the American people from all sorts of political perspectives. And I wondered sort of in your role at the Washington Post and in general, what you look for as, um, as somebody who's worthwhile to read and to listen to and maybe as your part of your role in the Washington Post to employ as uh, an opinion writer? Oh, well, I have no role mm -hmm. in hiring anybody, so mm -hmm. um, I'll leave that last question. Sure, just ignore it. That last question <laughs> off. But for, for me, it's in terms of opinion writers to look for, I mean, obviously I look for good writing, um, good angles and, ar and, and arguments. Is this person coming at a particular issue from an angle I hadn't considered or, or didn't take seriously? Um, when it comes to, and so I'm, I'm a quote unquote liberal columnist, liberal opinion writer. And so for me to cross over and read someone who is conservative, you know, I've got my, I've got my little, my little checklist. The primary thing on that checklist is um, a conservative writer who will not insist that I believe that two plus two equals five. And there are a lot of people out there who are insisting that we see two plus two equals five in a way, um, as a way of supporting the president. Now, the conservative writers and commentators I listen to by now are probably called never Trumpers and, you know, Trump folks dismiss them. But I, I look at those folks as being true to who they've always been. The Republicans, they're conservatives, and certainly to my mind as a, as a person who grew up at a time, I guess, I think Reagan was at the end of his administration. Bush was coming, H.W. Bush was bec becoming president. 
around the time I was about your your age now. And so for me, you know, two terms of Reagan, a term of HW, that's my whole vision of the Republican Party. And President Trump is not that. And so for, for a conservative columnist to write a piece that I will take seriously and not dismiss after the first paragraph, they have to um, sing from that, from that hymnal. And that's not to say that I'm going to agree with everything that they say, but I want that writer, on either Repu Republican, Democrat, liberal, or conservative, the writer has to respect the intelligence of, of the reader. And you know, there, I think there are a lot of conservative writers out there who honestly want to, aren't taking readers seriously and listeners seriously. That makes sense. Um, I'm thinking in that sort of category of conservative writers who might now be branded anti-Trumpers. I'm thinking of Jennifer Rubin, mm -hmm. uh, among others. And what, you left out the prolific, the Jennifer, prolific Jennifer, 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 Jennifer Rubin. Yeah, no, I, 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 um, I do eat her. But I, I'm wondering what you think. Maybe it's just sort of. A, a centeredness that doesn't have to do with the political winds of the time. But what do you think makes some writers able to separate themselves from, say, the president or on the left, other uh -huh. other figures that um, might pull them to, to extreme or something like that? What makes the, some writers able to separate themselves from that well, I think extremism? I thought I heard the word come out of your mouth a little bit, but it's a core I mean, whether you're conservative or liberal, you have to have some sort of moral core, a set of beliefs that guide your worldview and your writing. And if you don't have a core set of beliefs, then you will flap to wherever you think the popular opinion and conversation is. And uh, I have seen it happen many, many times. Um, one of the best compliments I can ever get is from someone saying, wow, you wrote that piece and you took a lot of hell from people, particularly if it's on race and I'll piss off some African-Americans or if it's on LGBT issues, I'll piss off, as I say, piss off the gays. But, um, but they'll say to me, but you know, I, I admire the fact that you, you said it. And it's a matter of being, a matter of being consistent. And being consistent is is hard, whether you have a, a moral core or not. Um, there will be situations that'll happen that will rock your core, and you have to. You'll be in this dilemma of what do, what do I do? What do I say? And that's when you realize, like, wow, this is the job that I have. <laughs> like, I've got I'm, I'm gonna have to make a decision here. But for those writers who don't have a core, you can tell. You can tell there's a hollowness to the writing. There's no, there's no real passion. It's sort of like when you strike a match, that first flame, it's really exciting. But does it stay lit or does it go out? And the match that stays lit, that's the person with the core. And you can tell that the, the, that the match stays lit, not just by one column, but by several columns. They come back to an issue over and over and over again. And particularly... Um, writers who come back to an issue over and over and over again 
but then something happens that changes that changes them and if they have the the guts to admit hey wow i made a mistake i'm acknowledging the mistakes the mistake here's the new information that came out here's my new thinking and and move on um, very few very few people do that but the ones who do do that i think are the ones who get um, loyal readers because in the end everyone knows what the news is but not everyone understands why they should care about it and so for opinion writers that's our that's our job is to to tell readers um, okay I know you're talking about say Ralph Governor Northam and the horrific the racist picture or say the Covington Catholic high school kids everyone's talking about it but no one really knows like they have their opinions but they don't really know like where does it fit or where do, actually let me take that back they might know where it fits and everything but they want to know where they fit in the conversation and so if there are people who they listen to or read who they trust and that person expresses what they've been thinking and feeling then that gives them a sense of a, a sense of place and belonging in a in a bigger conversation and if anything i always say to say to people you know you know one please click the link when i when i write something click the link mm -hmm. because then when i make an assertion i always put in a hyperlink or try to so that someone asks well where do you how do you know that click read it if anything arm yourself with all the information you need to do battle with uncle jerry <laughs> or aunt susie what do you think so obviously opinion writers and journalists have different roles to some extent um in in the um in our political landscape but i'm wondering where you think your jobs overlap and where you think um where you think they differentiate uh -huh. themselves opinion writing versus uh just the facts reporting well they overlap all the time maggie haverman of the new york times and i could go to the same event cover the same cover the same speech talk to the same people, do our own reporting, because I think there's a, a misperception out there that opinion writers just spout off. They don't actually talk to anybody. And that's not true. We do our own reporting. But the difference is Maggie writes her story and there's, she tries very hard, no opinion. It's person X said this, person Y said that, here you know, is where it fits and whatever, and that's the story. I, having covered the same thing, and talk to the same people can now actually say, and this is why person X is right, person Y has a point or two, but they're wrong, mm -hmm. or or vice versa. Right. And that is that is the difference. If anything, if I could impart any lesson in answer to that question you ask, is to implore people to realize that opinion writers are indeed journalists. I don't know how many times on Twitter people are like trying to defend me. Jonathan is not a journalist. He's an opinion writer. I'm like, hold up, wait a minute. Not helping. Not helping. I'm I am a journalist. I just get to say what I think. Okay, that makes sense. That, that, that's helpful. Thanks. Um, speaking of reporting and cultivating sources, I'm always so interested in how journalists cultivate sources and how you develop those relationships where you can really trust 
somebody to be giving you accurate information, but also perhaps in a timely way, like get a leg up on somebody else maybe. Um, so I'm wondering how you, if you have any suggestions for future reporters or um, or sort of background on cultivating sources, as well as um, how you know when a source is trustworthy versus trying to manipulate you, you know? Well, sources are always trying to manipulate you because they are trying to, they're giving you information that for one reason or another, either to make themselves look good, make the boss look good, um, help along an issue or, or um, distract from something or hobble somewhat, hobble someone else. Cultivating sources is, I mean, it takes a long time. Um, it, it's a thing where, you know, you you meet somebody at something and you exchange cards and then there, this dance sort of happens. It's not just that the reporter is looking for a source or that the source is looking for some, for some reporter to help get out information. But there, there's trust has to be earned on, on both sides. I hate saying both sides now. Thank, <laughs> thanks, so President Trump. It's, so it's tainted. But for the source and the reporter, it, it is a, it, it's an exercise in mutual trust. And so I remember when I was starting out, and I've always been an opinion writer, um, never been a news site reporter, but I had sources. And so... I have a source tell me that something is is going to happen or gives me a piece of information. If I'm able to call other places and just like, hey, have you heard this? And what about that? And if I'm able to report out and realize, oh, that source is actually really good. And then I do a story and the story, you know, the piece goes out. There's no major repercussions. It, it, pan, it pans out even after being published. Um, it's like, wow, I'm going to go back to that source and see what else do they know. Right. And not all the time for a story. Just pick up the Hey, so what do you know? What's going on? Now, from the source's perspective, they've picked up the phone and they've called you as a reporter. They've given you information and you've actually used it. You ran it down, but you used it. And so now for that source... The, you as the reporter becomes their go-to person. Mm -hmm. It's like, hey, you know, do you know that this is going on? Or I've got a story for you. Or this might be, this might be of interest. Because you've given me gold before, I have no reason not to trust that you're giving me something good again as long as I've been able to run it down. Right. And also, it depends on where the source is. So... Starting out, the source could be like a deputy press aide to a member of the city council. Ten years later, that person's now communications director to the mayor. Or then that person jumps and becomes, you know, senior advisor to the governor. And you can follow them. And by now, we've been friends for 20 years. Right. Friends, sources whatever but there's a relationship there one built on mutual trust where you can then have the knockdown drag out fight and say all right you know what lucy you're 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 
totally full of shit. I know for sure because I talked to so and so in such and such office. Why am why are you giving me this this bull? Yeah. And then you can come back. What they said that? No, 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 no. Let me tell you. Right. But that's and twenty years. And you have a reason to believe me, and I have a reason to believe you. Right. At right. That and point. so you've got you've got twenty years worth of a relationship that which like is the source really going to burn a reporter by giving them knowingly false giving information. them fa- false information but as we have seen our democratic institutions have been built on trust and we're watching them crumble mm-hmm. all around us so um, it's easy for for that trust to to be disrupted that that's uh, totally fascinating as a process do you find that we're hearing so much about erosion of trust in political institutions, but also in democratic institutions, including the press, among the public. And I was wondering if you find that there's an erosion of trust among sources going to um, going to reporters such as yourself. So, oh. do they- well, you have to understand, sources. It's not like everyone wants to talk to the press. No, sure. <laughs> um, quite the contrary. Um, you know, being married to someone who, you know, used to be uh, at the State Department, um, you know, he used to say to me, I, I never talk to the press. <laughs> I hate the press. They're terrible. Uh, don't want to talk to even in throughout my career I have always I have always known that my presence somewhere can alter the mood just by just by being a member a member of the press I can I can be the walking buzzkill <laughs> and and so I've been very sensitive to that because you know whether they're elected officials or people who work for elected officials they have lives too and so I'm not about making anybody uncomfortable. And what I'm thinking of is um, during the Obama administration, John Favreau and I, the president's former speechwriter, and I were neighbors. He lived one floor up from me. And so I was on the roof deck of our uh, apartment building just enjoying a glass of wine and the sun was going down and I was reading. And then he and a bunch of friends come up to come up to the roof um, and it's Favreau and Vitor and the guys who are now the and pod podcast sa- breaks out. <laughs> right right the pod save America guys or at least two of them but there were other people and they were talking about all sorts of stuff and I felt uncomfortable for them yeah. and so I, after about 10 minutes I just decided you know what I'll forego the sunset because I don't I, like I am literally the Washington Post sitting right, right there you don't make them while feel they're all the time. right <laughs> right and so I I left I didn't have to do that I could have been a complete jerk and just sat there the whole time and just sort of like taking mental notes or taking <laughs> notes but that's but that's not me right um, and I think that goes back to to having a, a core what well, well, just a sense of decency uh, really um, is what I'm talking about. Do have their own lives. Right. And, yeah. um, and it does seem like there's less and less privacy. So there's, right. so there's something to respecting it, for sure. Um, I also wanted to talk to you about, you have sort of, from what I can tell, several um, 
opinion jobs. platforms, several jobs, <laughs> several opinions. So like your role at The Post, your role at MSNBC, your role on K-pop, all offer perhaps different opportunities to express opinion and do reporting. And I just wondered how you see those roles differentiate themselves or what what you do differently on the different platforms well they're all they're all sort of um mutually reinforcing so i could like this morning i did morning joe and then did andrew mitchell's show at noon something in the conversation there could have turned into a column and then i write the i write the column and then um uh, or it becomes the idea for a podcast. Um, another thing th that I do a lot of is moderating discussions and panel live events. Senator Kamala Harris's um, book launch was here in Washington at, uh, at GW, and I was the one who interviewed her about, about her book. We took that audio and turned it into a podcast episode. So it's all sort of mutually reinforcing, but that's what journalists have to do today. You can't just be a newspaper person. You can't just be television. You can't just be radio. You can't just be online. You have got to figure out a way to do all of those things in order to be, relevant's not the right word. Um, I think it's, um, uh, it's just the way it's just the way the business is now mm -hmm. uh, and with everyone so focused on you know brand which has sort of a, a negative connotation to it but that being said if someone who say is at the New York Times with 500,000 Twitter followers and maybe a couple hundred thousand Facebook followers picks up and comes to the Washington Post well that on, I mean, the Washington Post knows that not only are they getting this reporter, this journalist, but they're getting that reporter's audience, and <clears throat> and to a certain extent, that's in the that is something that's in the favor of the journalist, because before it was wow, if you are no longer at one of those legacy institutions, you're toast. Today. If someone leaves a legacy institution and goes off and does something else, whatever that something else is, they're bringing people with them because now the, 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 the audience is about the person and the institution hopes that some of that loyalty to the person will rub off on, will rub off on them. And for the longest time, it was the other way around. I, uh, I wanted to get your perspective heading into the 2020 election cycle on how um, journalists and opinion writers should learn from or can learn from 2016 going into 2020 about how they report and and what they uh, what's worthwhile to report. I'm specifically thinking of the fact that um, journalists have received some criticism for covering Trump in a way that didn't um, that maybe led to his phenom status or, or contributed to his phenom status in 2016 and I just going into a competitive democratic primary I just wondered how journalists can um, can combat some of those same problems this cycle so in 2016 the problem um, was that no one took Trump seriously 
nobody took him seriously. But he was thoroughly entertaining in the sense that here's this guy who's never in politics, who does a rally and says things that no person running for president has ever, should ever, and up to that point, would ever say. Immediately out the gate, he says in his announcement, Mexicans are rapists, among other, among other things. And everyone's like, whoa. And then rally after rally after rally was like that, saying these incendiary things. But no one took him serious. Like, wow, no one is going to be elected president having said that. But, you know, the circus is in town. So let's show it from beginning to end because it's it's so fascinating. It's like a, a, a daily car wreck. Um, I started taking him seriously about a month into his campaign in 2016 when he said that now the now late Senator John McCain was not a war hero because he got captured. I mean, <clears throat> I, I grew up in a time like, you do not denigrate the service of anyone in the military, and especially the, a, a statesman like John McCain, who was, the, who was the previous Republican presidential nominee. You just don't do that. Your candidacy is dead. But when his poll numbers went up, that's when I knew something is not right here and people need to start paying attention to what's happening. He gets the nomination. Now the press corps is like, well, now he's got a 50-50 shot of being president, so we'll take him half seriously. So the coverage was still sort of, I think, a little bit lazy. Okay, maybe a lot lazy. <laughs> Especially when you compare it to the coverage given to Hillary Clinton, who, and I wrote a, I had written a piece about this, where Hillary Clinton was given presidential status covering. And scrutiny. Right, that's, that's the word I was looking for, <laughs> presidential scrutiny. She was asked all those questions about the emails and the foundation, and those were all the right questions to ask. But President Trump, was he asked questions about the Trump Organization, the Trump Foundation, his past history in, in New York City, um, the fact that he can't, couldn't get a loan from any bank in New York because no one wanted to do business with him. Those kinds of stories that should have been done in real time weren't done for him because no one thought he was going to win. And I think for, 20, for 2020, the, and especially because now we're gonna have what, like 25, 30 Democrats running for president, I, I think um, simply because it's, it's the Democratic Party, uh, reporters are going to be taking the candidates very seriously because now reporters understand having endured two years of President Trump and everything he's done to undermine democratic institutions, reporters now understand, uh, not understand, I think they more fully appreciate their constitutional role in that it's not just fun and games. It's not just another rally where he 
screams out, build the wall, and Mexico's going to pay for it, and immigrants are bring, bringing disease and all sorts of stuff, that those words have an impact that are doing damage at home and abroad. So uh, in 2020, as I suspect just in general, on the, on the Democratic side, the debate is going to be infinitely more substantive. I mean, already it feels like to me, you were probably like eight years old in the 2018, the 20, the 2008 race, when it was Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, um, uh, uh, Richardson, who used to be the, the UN ambassador, um, Lieberman, all these people. And every, Democrats are like, oh my God, there's so many people, but they're all so good. You know, they're talking about real issues. There are We've, substantive candidates. Right now, I've lost count of how many people who are officially in the race, but, you know, we're talking about tax plans, new green deals, Medicare for all. It's not to say that all these things are going to happen, but we're talking about real issues. There's a policy debate within the party. Right, at a time when there's no policy debate happening at the at the national level and certainly not being led uh, by the White House. I, I guess you, it's summed up by democracy dies in darkness, sort of the, the role of, yeah. the, role of the, the press for coming uh, for the coming election cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, as a final question, we like to ask everybody if there's any books, articles, anything people should read that comes off of the topics we've discussed today. Um, Besides nice. K-pop. Yeah, yes, besides column. listening to K-pop and, and reading me in the Washington Post. Um, actually, you know what I would say, since, since you mentioned the 2020 campaign, um, people should, should read or at least read a couple of chapters in books that are put out by candidates running for president. Because those books, and you, know, you can tell it's a, cam- it's a campaign book, um, but at least it gives you an idea as to where the candidate's head is at and where they would, where they want to take the country. Um, reading Senator Harris's book was really interesting because it came out what three weeks before she officially announced she was running for president. But in reading the book, it was clear she was running for president. <laughs> clear. It's it's all right there. All these allusions to running, starting on page five with her father <laughs> saying, run, Kamala, run as fast as you can when she was a little girl in a park, to all these other references to fighting and being told to wait your turn. Um, you're going to lose. Why should you run? You're going to lose. You'll never be San Francisco district attorney. And she won twice. <laughs> oh, what are you doing running for California AG? You're never gonna you're never gonna win. You're gonna lose. And she won twice. And then she has all these allusions to Oakland in the book. To me, as an African American, when I see allusions to Oakland, that tells me one thing. Oh, well, actually tells me two things. <laughs> She's black and she's not afraid of a fight. And that those those three things, I'm running, I'm not afraid of a fight, <clears throat> and tangentially, I'm black too. Um, those are things that I think people need to keep in mind as they watch this, <clears throat> excuse me, as they watch this campaign. Um, 
and you can pick up other lessons from other from other candidates books I would tell you what they are if I had read other people's <laughs> books <laughs> but I haven't as a matter of full disclosure so there no, but we all should I I agree Thank you so much for talking to us today, and I'm sure we'll have lots more questions for you some other time if you're willing to come back. Sure, mm -hmm. sure, and I'll be a lot less rambly. No, no, Thanks, no, Lucy. I really appreciated it. I really appreciated it. This was great. Thank you so much. Thanks.